Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Black Baseball Mixtape. I am your host, Cheats. As always, the mixtape is brought to you by the Family Podcast Network. Please take a minute, take a minute, and continue your amazing support by subscribing, liking, following, doing anything you can because we truly, truly appreciate it. And by doing so, you help elevate this podcast and all of our wonderful guests and all the things that they're doing to a larger audience. So we really appreciate the support. I am very excited about our guest on this episode. I t- I say this all the time. I know it's getting cliche after six months. Every guest I say is, is extremely special, a dream guest for 2023. But as you... If you're following the mixtape, you know I made a list, a handwritten list on January 1, 2023 of guests that I wanted to have on the podcast. And this gentleman was at near near the top, if not at the top of the list for all that he's done. I'm honored to have the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum and a.k.a. The greatest living storyteller in all of baseball, because I know I know what he's going to say. He's not the greatest storyteller. He'll tell you who he thinks is. But without further ado, Bob Kendrick, welcome to the mixtape. It is so it's an honor to have you. Oh, Chiefs, man, I appreciate so much you inviting me to be on the show. Thank you. Now, I know you've heard it and I've heard you counteract this. I've heard you say you are not the greatest storyteller and baseball, I think you give that credit to Buck O'Neill, but you are definitely on the Mount Rushmore of storytelling in baseball. How, 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 what is it about the way that you tell stories and, and not necessarily comparison to Buck, but tell me why you think one that you think Buck O'Neill is a great storyteller in baseball. And, and how do you, how do you go about carrying that torch? And it's really interesting because I never fastened myself initially as a storyteller, and clearly I've earned this reputation, and I think some of it was almost through osmosis being around Buck for so many years. You know, I was around him, and you watched how he interacted, and the thing that I always admired about Buck, number one, his recall was exceptional. And no matter how many times he may have told a story. If he was telling it to you, he was going to tell it to you as if it was the first time he ever told that story. He was not going to cheat you. He mm-hmm. wanted you to feel it. And I think as storytellers, the, the greatest compliment is people say, I felt like I was there. When you can paint a picture so vividly that you feel as if I was there watching Satchel in that epic matchup against Josh Gibson as Buck told so beautifully in the Ken Burns documentary and all the other great stories that I now get to share with those. The only difference is he lived them uh and and I got them firsthand from those who did live them. Mm -hmm. And and I get to do that. And, And storytelling, as you know, has always been an important part of African-American tradition. That is essentially how we learned about ourselves. Mm. You know, your grandparents, great-grandparents sat you down and they would sit you at your feet and say, boy, let me tell you about these ball players you should have known about. Uh-huh. And, and that is kind of how we learned about ourselves 
because we're still not prominently part of history books. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's been that passing down of history from generation to generation. So storytelling is certainly at the crux of what this museum is all about because it is primarily an oral history to begin with. And, and so you get to bring these characters, some of them almost mythical-like in nature, to life. Absolutely. And one of the ways you have been able to pass down that tradition and tell amazing stories is through your fantastic podcast, Black Diamonds. It is a must listen every time a new episode comes up. I learned so and I I fashioned myself as someone who knows a lot about Negro League history. I learned something new every episode that is phenomenal. How did you come up with the concept of telling these stories in the way that you you tell them on Black Diamonds because it is riveting? It's really interesting because I came into this whole podcasting business kicking and screaming, man. Oh, no. I really didn't want any part of it. Oh, it's so good. I, I really didn't. And Sirius XM has kind of stayed behind me, said, Bob, you're a good storyteller. We think you should have your own podcast. Now, I've done interviews on virtually everybody's sports podcast, and you're always trying to create, op create opportunities to find a platform for the museum. But, man, I never, ever dreamt of having my own podcast because simply in my mindset was you don't have enough time to do that. We're so <laughs> busy here, which is a great thing. We're so doggone busy here. Like you don't have time to do a podcast. And the folks at Sirius just stayed behind me. And, and at some point, I think the little light bulb clicked like, Bob, this is a national, international platform for your museum. Mm -hmm. You've got to figure out how to do this and then the two of us collaborated. We came up with this concept down that is called Black Diamonds. And, and honestly, I was blown away by its success. Mm -hmm. uh, year one, the podcast was named National Sports Podcast of the Year by Ad Week. And you don't mm -hmm. do this for adulation. You do this because you want to enlighten, hopefully inspire and educate people about a piece of history that the more majority of us really didn't know anything about. And so it's a unique concept because it always starts off with me telling a story and then bringing in a guest that some way, shape, form, or fashion relates back to the story that I've shared. And it has opened up Negro League's history to a new generation of baseball fans who are falling in love with the Negro Leagues. And so it's been an amazing platform. We'll start the new season here near the end of the month and I'm excited about it. We've got some interesting topics that we're going to look at this year. Last year, we spent the majority of the season looking at the 75th anniversary of Jackie's breaking of the color barrier and the impact and that integration had in both a positive as well as its detriment in some ways. Uh, when Jackie breaks the color barrier and, and its destruction of the Negro Leagues and the ripple effect that it had on Black economy. And so it was a fascinating year to kind of dive deeper into in integration, its impact, and its ramifications. It, it is so well done, and you're, you're exactly right about season two. There's so many things that stand out to me just about that story of, of, of integration and, and the way that Jackie entered. And there's so many exciting 
not even ancillary players, just there's so many factors that I don't think people truly understood when it comes to how it all how it all went down, how it all worked. One of the most fascinating things about the entire integration story that's that's told, but I don't think it's told enough, is the fight over compensation. Black Diamonds tells it wonderfully, but the idea that Jackie is integrated, it's not told in the movies, but the way the way that Branch Ricky basically plucks Jackie out of the middle of the night from the Kansas City Monarchs and basically dares uh, the Hall of Fame owner of the Monarchs to 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 kind of stop it because everybody in the world knows that. One, you don't want to get in the way of this. One, the interest. The other side of the interesting factor of this was the Kansas City Monarchs was owned by a white man, a white man, which made it even another layer that said this white man is going to stop integration in Major League Baseball, even though he should have rightfully got compensated. And some of the yeah, owner Negro League owners, uh, in particular, um, uh, Effie Manley and Effie Manley, and some of the like. So it was just this interesting dynamic of those types of stories that were told on Black Diamonds and told. But it was always fascinating that if it hadn't been Jackie, do you think it would have been Monty Irving? Monty Irving could have very easily have been the first. And as I share with folks, he had the same pedigree that Jackie had. But to be quite honestly, Cheech, he was a better baseball player than Jackie Robinson. And that's not taking no, absolutely, absolutely. away from Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson is one of the greatest athletes in American sports history. But Monty Irvin, man, was a superstar in the Negro League. Five-tool guy, and as I like to say, with movie star good look. He had everything <laughs> he had you all. needed. Yeah, he had all the good. He had everything you needed to be a star. But Effa Manley blocks him from being the first because Branch Rickey had already signed Monty Irvin before. Jackie mm-hmm. Robinson, and she threatened to litigate. And, and Ricky knew that he could not afford a public fight with this black woman, although we truthfully do not know Effa Manley's ethnicity. There are mm. some that believe mm. she was biracial. There were some who believed that she was white. Mm. She cer- certainly chose to assimilate to black culture. And, and so he knew he could not afford to have a public battle with this black woman about bringing this player into Major League Baseball because you already know that the other owners are going to stand in solidarity to try to block this already. So you didn't need to give them additional ammunition. That's when he turned his sight here to Kansas City and won Jackie Robinson playing for the Kansas City Monarchs. And as you mentioned earlier, this is how savvy, maybe shrewd, calculating Ricky was because he knew that J.L. Wilkinson could not fight back. Mm-hmm. Because as you identified, he was white. Mm-hmm. And there was no way that this white man who made his entire living in black baseball right, right. the public face of blocking what every black person in America had been waiting on for a black man to play in the major leagues. If he does, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. That black fan base that had been so loyal to him would have turned their backs on him right away. And Ricky, I think, knew this. He knew this. Uh huh. And, and Wilkinson had no choice but to relent. Mm-hmm. Publicly, he said the right things. 
because you still got to protect your business interests. Absolutely. Privately, he is Stephen. <laughs> and rightfully so, in many ways. And, right, and rightfully so, in many ways. Man, you're going to take away from me. <laughs> right. You're going to put me out of business. Absolutely. Now, now, now I've heard hindsight is always 2020, but I've heard overall our culture, our community, black baseball fandom would have benefited from maybe a process where major league baseball adopted teams as opposed to players. Are do you, do you believe that? I mean, at the time night, we're talking 1946, 45, 47, they're not thinking of this type of what the way they're not thinking down the line and where we are today, but the idea of, picking off players just kind of drained the league and the resource mm-hmm. and left a lot. What, do you think it would have been better? It Was there even an opportunity to to adopt some of a, a whole kind of team or two teams into MLB? Well, and this speaks to the genius of Andrew Root Foster, who, of course, as you know, established the Negro Leagues mm-hmm. in Kansas City in 1920, February 13th of 1920. He felt even back then that he could create a league that was so dynamic that he would force Major League Baseball's hand to expand. And and I tell people, you know, those who follow the history of football, think about the old NFL and the old AFL and their merger. Mm -hmm. And those of us who are basketball fans, the merger of the NBA and the old ABA. Absolutely. You know, the ABA came out, man. They had the red, white, and blue ball. They put the three-point line <laughs> down. They started doing the slam dunk contest. They started stealing those college players away from the NBA. And I think the NBA said, oh, hell, we better do something here. And they ended up merging. And so for your audience, who are maybe some basketball fans, Indiana Pacers, Denver Nuggets. Yep. They're the Brooklyn Nets now, but they were the New Jersey Nets. These are all ABA teams, former ABA teams, San Antonio Spurs. I'm a Virginian. We have the Virginia Squires. Virginia Squires. Dr. J. My main man, Julius, Dr. J. Irvin, (laughs) before he goes over to the Nets. And and so, yeah, David Thompson, who's one of my favorite, who many folks say that Jackie Robinson's basketball style of play was David Thompson before we ever knew who David Thompson was. High praise, high praise. Yeah, high praise, high praise. And and so this was Ruth Foster's vision way back in 1920. Mm -hmm. That's how forward thinking he was. He thought that, okay, let's let's just play, play, put this scenario in place. Let's say that you absorb four of those black teams, Mm -hmm. the top four of those black teams. Then you take that other pool of talent from the remaining four to even strengthen those four, and now all of a sudden, Major League Baseball looks entirely different because not only do you have black players, now you got black owners, managers, coaches. Every aspect of the business of black baseball is being fulfilled by black people as it had been during the time when we owned our own professional league. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Jeff Kennesaw Mount Landon didn't want anything to do with this. <laughs> he didn't want nothing to do with this out here. Yeah, you know, he's on record as saying, Mr. Foster, where you give our league a black eye when your teams beat ours. Mm. You know, because mm-hmm. he knew. And, and this would have changed the dynamics. Now, would baseball have ultimately integrated at some point in time? I think it would have, but you would have this pool of black talent 
that would have been flowing into those four teams. And I think they would have held their own against the oh, elite of Major League Baseball without question. Absolutely. You you mentioned uh, the old commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and exactly what he said about black baseball and beating Major League teams. I tend to instantly think of the barnstorming days. And I it's not apples to apples, but in those years, especially those late um in those like late forties, fifties, it was such a subsidized income to have these all star mm-hmm. travel teams go through. I'm I'm doing that and I'm comparing to what's happening right now and in twenty twenty three as we all are kind of locked in on looking at the World Baseball Classic. And and I, I love the World Baseball Classic. I that love seeing it. I think it's phenomenal. I'm so excited to see those those crowds in Miami and see those crowds. And but it's it's kind of the coolest thing and the maybe the closest thing we'll see to to some of that. And I and I and, and in many ways, obviously today we hear some of the outrage about oh the focus should be on regular season games and so forth and and keeping players healthy. I always struggle with how did, how did it go away? Because it was so robust and it was so exciting and it was towns that never got to see baseball getting to see their favorite all-star players. And a lot of them playing against all white teams the 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 satchel page bob feller battles and things that you would never get to see in towns that you never get to see it just seems so interesting and awesome how did how did it, how do we get to this point now where we have fans that are like may not want them to play for their own country i don't i don't get it bob yeah, it, it's really interesting and, and and i i agree with you the world baseball classic i think is one of the best things that baseball has ever done Love it. Because, because number one, it, it also helps us understand that there are a lot of people around this globe that can play baseball. And I think that has always been the common misperception or conception that if it didn't happen in the major leagues, then it didn't happen. That's why people still look kind of with a little somewhat of a squint in their eye when they think about the Negro Leagues and uh, they, the, 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 there's this kind of doubt. You say, well, maybe they were good, but I don't know if they were as good as old Bob say they were, and I don't know if they were, you know, equal to a major league team. Man, there have always been a lot of people that can play this game. Yeah. And, and what I love, I just left Hot Springs, Arkansas, where we opened one of our traveling exhibitions called mm-hmm. Negro Leagues Baseball, the Spanish mm-hmm. spelling of the word baseball. And this exhibit, Cheeks, it celebrates a little-known but very profound connection between the Negro Leagues and Spanish-speaking countries Mm -hmm. from around the globe. Negro League players were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. And as you well know, when we went to those countries, we were treated like heroes. Mm -hmm. You got to stay in the finest hotels, eat in the finest restaurants that those countries had to offer, come back home and be treated like a second-class citizen. And as a result, a lot of Negro League players would actually call those Spanish-speaking countries home because in those countries, they weren't Black baseball players. It's just baseball players. Mm-hmm. But the Negro Leagues taught their ancestors how to play this game the way we play this game. And, and it strikes me that the Spanish-speaking athlete still plays the game with that flair, that energy, 
that the Negro Leagues brought to their countries years ago. Damn and the major leaguers used to say back then, well, they don't play the game the right way, which was essentially a code word for saying oh, they don't play the game the white way. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what that was. Absolutely. And, and so the, the World Baseball Classic, man, you're right. You look at that scene in Miami, wherever the Dominicans or the Puerto Ricans, Venezuela, where they're playing, it's a party in the stands. It's beautiful. It's great for our sport. It, it provides an injection that our sport, I think, so sorely needs. Now, I understand the concerns about athletes getting hurt and that kind of thing. And the baseball season is certainly important. But I love this diversion that we get every so often with the World Baseball Classic. I love it. And I, my my counter to, to those individuals is I never hear that when they're talking about the World Cup. Never. <laughs> when the, when the World Cup is around, it's you the biggest that. thing in the world. And I think Absolutely. that's I think that's where the WBC is going. Yeah. I think if they continue on the momentum, they're going to have the best players on their, you know, representing the best countries. And it's going to be a World Cup feel where it's an honor. It's an it, honor to play. It really is. And, and and that's a beautiful thing that I love about our story. The Negro Leagues actually helped make our game the global game that Absolutely. it is today. We go to Japan well before Babe Ruth and his All-Americans <laughs> are there. Sure. We're there in 1927, and the Japanese fans fell in love with these players from the Philadelphia Royal Giants, led by two future Hall of Famers in Raleigh, Biz Mackey, and Andy Cooper both in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. We became early ambassadors over in Japan. As you know, it's a, it is a country whose culture is predicated around respect. Absolutely. The Negro League players didn't go over, tried to beat them as bad as they could, taught them the game, and the fans absolutely adored them. And the other point that you raised is that through barnstorming, you promoted the game. Yes. You grew the game. You grew its interest. And so as the Negro Leaguers were traveling all across this country, taking professional baseball to places that had never seen professional baseball, and they were far more astute at barnstorming than the Major Leaguers did, or the Major Leaguers were, but you're right. Satchel Page All-Stars against the Bobby Feller All-Stars or the Dizzy Dean All-Stars, <laughs> sure. and they're outdrawing Major League games. They're outdrawing those Major League games. And, and that epic tour with Feller and Satchel in 1946. Mm. Buck O'Neill says for 17 days of work, each of them could earn $7,000 a piece. Mm. He said he was making so much money, his wife thought he was stealing. <laughs> <laughs> it's unheard of. They worked they work for it, though. It was unheard of, but they worked for it. They were doing yeah, no, no. I mean, doubles in different really... towns in the same day. They were doing, they were doing they, crazy well, stuff. They had... Fella leased his old rickety plane. Right, so he right, had a right. plane. Satchel had a plane. And they flying in on this old rickety plane from town to town to go play these games. But you had the creme de la creme. The Absolutely. Best of the best. Absolutely. And, and people wanted to see this. Sir, let me ask you this. Because you, you mentioned it, it, just the f- challenge. I wouldn't even call it a fight. But the challenge that you always will have and you will continue to have with having people recognize the brilliance of the Negro Leagues. Major, major milestone, I think, that you led the effort to help pull this across the hill was the counting of Negro League statistics as Major League Baseball statistics. Mm -hmm. 
there's there's all of these trajectories that you've put the museum on and Negro League history on, but to be recognized this way by Major League Baseball seems to be, for me, a plane that's a little bit different than, say, awareness, advertising. This is something that says, oh, no, these guys were pros and their stats should count with the pros. When that happened, when it finally got over the hill, what was your thoughts and, and how did it make you feel? I was excited and, and very pleased that this finally took place. You know, I was like a lot of other people who didn't realize that there had been this commission in the 1960s that was put together to task to recognize formerly professional baseball leagues in this country, and they had overlooked the Negro League. You know, the Federal League and all these other little rinky-dink leagues had been recognized, and yet the Negro Leagues had been omitted. It was clearly and blatantly racism that led to that because when you think about it, the Negro Leagues impacted this game as much or more than any league ever, including what it did for Major League Baseball. Because again, they're playing in Major League stadiums and they're filling mm-hmm. up those ballparks and who was making money from the Negro Leagues? Major League. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And which is one of the reasons why it took so long to integrate because these teams were making money off the Negro Leagues because they were renting their ballparks. The lease in the stadiums, yeah. Yeah, so they're getting a percentage of the gate and likely all of the concessions. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So that had that was certainly a major variable and why it took so long to integrate our game. And then this talent, all this talent. When you look at what happened after Jackie breaks the color barrier and all of this talent that flows into Major League Baseball, which completely changed the way Major League Baseball was being played. One of my favorite factoids associated with the immediate impact that the Negro Leagues had on Major League Baseball from 1949 through 1959, nine of 11 National League most valuable players were former Negro League stars. Mm-hmm. Now, now geez, we're not even talking rookies of the year. No, nope. I'm talking rookies of the year. These are most valuable players. Now, please keep in mind, the American League was so slow to integrate. They they, they came in literally kicking the screen. And, and Elson Howard would be the first MVP in the American League. But the National League, which is why you saw the pendulum of power shift to the National League because they're bringing in all these great stars from, from the Negro Leagues. And, and so, yeah, this league deserved to be recognized. And for me, it was more about historical validation mm-hmm. because the players from the Negro Leagues certainly were never seeking anyone to validate them. Mm-hmm. They knew how good they were and they knew how good their league was. And honestly, the Major Leaguers knew how good they were. Uh-huh. But for historical purposes, this was the proper recognition. And to now see this process of rolling the statistics of the Negro Leagues. And, and let me stop and say I tip my cap to all the Negro League historians and researchers mm-hmm. who have dedicated themselves uh, to go through and pull the necessary data together to get us to this point. Mm-hmm. Because I can tell you, they did yeoman's duty to go back and and find stuff that had essentially been lost to time. And and so this was really important and it sent a resounding message. And so I know every time Major League Baseball does something, people think that there's always an ulterior motive 
Mm-hmm. That's just the nature of being the big player as they are. Sure. But what I tell people all the time, there were other commissioners who could have done what Commissioner Manfred did, mm-hmm. and they didn't do it. Right. They didn't do it. They could have, with one strike of the pen, they could have fixed this years ago, and they didn't do it. Commissioner Manfred did. And, and I think he has consistently been a voice uh, for Black baseball history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I appreciate what has happened, and I hope that it helps people understand just how good this league was and how great these players were. And I'm sure the purest will be still, probably still simmering a little bit about the fact, stewing maybe, about the fact that this is going to alter baseball history the way they knew it. My, I always, I marvel at any anyone that is concerned about the statistics part of this, only because at the very least you just mentioned it, the statistics are conservative because they they can only document what was documented. Yeah. There are so many games that didn't have box scores. There are exactly. so many games that didn't have who who you know who took the hill and how many innings were pitched and how many strikes. And so at the very most, the stats are less than what people could document. Let 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 me ask you this, Mr. President, because. I believe I, I do believe that the the stats are a watershed mark on on one level. Something that you're doing now is I think going to be very significant in the future of the Negro Leagues. And I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but amongst young people, MLB the show <laughs> is it's the young people Bible. It is the way that young people know the players of the game, know the teams of the game, more so than watching, you know, watching the games on TV or even going to their hometown team. If they're in the show, that makes it real. Yes. And you and your team and working with the video game and baseball, you have now, we are, I guess next month or later this month, we're going to see Negro League baseball players in storylines in MLB The Show. How did this come about? (laughs) And uh, I mean, I know you're, look, I know you're connected to the streets. I know it. You're connected (laughs) to the community. But do, do you really fully understand how significant this is for young players playing the game? You know, People had been clamoring for quite some time for the inclusion of Negro Leagues in a video game of some kind. I had hoped that it would happen, but I wasn't sure if it would indeed ever happen. And two years ago, folks from Sony PlayStation reached out to me to plant the seed about the possibility. And obviously my antennas went up and I'm excited about this, but even then they're cautioning me saying, we don't know if this can happen. We're going to, we're going to try and explore and see about the possibilities. And then last year, next thing I know, we got a camera crew coming into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and they're sitting me down with this concept that is now, as you identified, going to be called storylines, a special mode uh, that will include eight Negro League players in year one. We've got a five-year partnership with Sony. So you're going to see, hopefully, throughout the term of this agreement, 
as many as 40, 50 Negro League stars integrated mm -hmm. into the game. And, and that's exciting. And what I admire about what the team over at PlayStation did was this is more than just putting Satchel Paige, Buck O'Neill, Root Foster, Jackie Robinson as a Kansas City Monarch, Hilton Smith, Hank Thompson, a name that is not a household name. Mm -hmm. People should know the name Henry Thompson. Henry Thompson is the first and only player to integrate two major league teams. He mm -hmm. integrates the St. Louis Browns. He integrates the New York Giants. He Absolutely. The Giants yep. Before Willie Mays or mm -hmm. Monty Irvin are there, they formed the major's first all-black outfield. Henry Thompson was an infielder by trade. That's how outstanding a ball player he was. And Martin DeHigo, the, you know, El Maestro, hailed from Cuba. Yep. Uh, uh, and is one of the baddest. It's hard to believe that people don't know who Martin DeHigo is. He's in five different countries, baseball halls of fame. Mm. Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. But it's more than just saying, okay, I'm going to play as them. We recorded these many documentaries that are embedded in the game so that before you play, you get to learn what made these players special, the gifts that they had. And it's an educational tool for us. So we're going to give the end user every opportunity to learn about the history of the Negro Leagues and these other little vignettes in there, you know, things like night baseball originating in the Negro League, mm -hmm. and the story of the Kansas City Monarchs and James Leslie Wilkinson, Ruth Foster's Chicago American Giants and its story. And, and so this is really exciting to me, but you're right. We think we had something or we thought we had something that was special <laughs> as we started to roll this out. But man, the minute that reveal video, the trailer dropped. Absolutely. This thing went bonkers. It went absolutely nuts. And I was telling Ramon Russell, who has been at the heart of putting this project together, because somewhere along the line, she, you still got to convince the powers to be that this will sell. Sure. And, you know, all the romanticism about the Negro Leagues being included in it is one thing. Right. Really making the money. <laughs> it's the other thing, you know, where people actually buy this, and and it's it certainly appears that people are excited about this. Yeah. And man, I hope I do. I hope that these young folks who are going to be playing this video game that they fall in love with these Negro League players the way that I've fallen in love with them from the day that I walked into a little one room office in 1993. And I peeked my head in and I asked, I said, I'm looking for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And the late Don Motley, who was the executive director at that time, says, son, you're standing in it. Mm. And, and, but from that point in time, I, you know, stepping in that one room office, I had literally walked into what would become my passion. And, and I hope that these young gamers fall in love with these heroes from the Negro Leagues as well. Because as you know, if anyone should be in a video game, it should be the players from the Negro League. Absolutely. Just because of the way they played the game. They put on a show. So it's very fitting <laughs> that they would be in MLB The Show 23 and subsequent releases of this game. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Look, I'm not going to ask you, you. You told the story a little bit. I'm not going to ask you how a, how a, how a hooper, because you're a hooper. 
turned it, turned his life into a passion of baseball because you're a hoops guy, but we're not going to get into it, Mr. President. We're not going to get into it. I got a couple more to get you out on. Yes, it has been an honor. Um, I want to ask you about some modern-day comparisons because you've seen quite a few players come through the, the museum, either whether they're visiting the Royals or their days or, or Royals themselves. Uh, um, so I want to ask you about some modern day comparisons to Negro League stars. This is going to okay. be a little bit of a game. Uh, uh, I'm going to start with New York Yankees, now just named the captain, Aaron Judge. Is there a Negro League comp? I know the obvious one would be Josh Gibson, but is there a Negro League comp to Aaron Judge? I think physically Luke Easter. Ooh. Now Luke, Luke, Luke was play first base though, but Luke was six five. You know they probably listed him at two fifty or so. Big, strong. Aaron though is a tremendous athlete. Yeah, you know he's not just this big, strong guy. I mean he's playing the outfield and playing it well. So he is somewhat of a freak of nature when you look at a guy. His magnitude, another player would be Ted Strong, who mm. was tremendously athletic. But, you know, I had Dave Winfield on the show mm. and drew the comparison of Winnie and Ted Strong because people forget, Cheeks, how great an athlete Dave Winfield was. Amazing. Dave Amazing. Winfield was one of the greatest athletes in American sports. Absolutely. Sports. You know, because people forget that he was drafted not only by Major League Baseball, but by the NFL, the NBA, and the old ABA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and, and so he was exceptional. Ted Strong was about six seven, not quite as big as Aaron Judge, but weighed about 240, 6'7", 240, same kind of athletic ability, power, five tool kind of guy. But he played multiple positions. He played every position except for mm-hmm. that's how freakish Ted Strong was. He's a six seven shortstop, <laughs> and when he wasn't playing, when he wasn't playing baseball. He starred for the Harlem Globetrotters. That's amazing. That's amazing. Let me give you a Hall of Fame comp. That was great. Let me give you a Hall of Fame comp, and, and we'll we'll move on. But is there anyone that would be in the Negro Leagues that would relate to the speed and the power of, say, a Ricky Henderson? Speed-wise, you had several. Cool Papa Bell, Sam Jethro. But people oftentimes ask me to give a comparison to Ricky Henderson. And I don't know if there is a comparison to Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson would have and could have very easily played in the Negro Leagues. And that that is, to me, the ultimate compliment. Compliment. That's the ultimate compliment. But the the, the blend of speed and power that he brought to the leadoff position, I'm not sure there's a real great comparison to Ricky under any circumstance. I like it. I like it. no comparison. <laughs> It'd be the first to tell you, absolutely. Um, somebody that I, 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 I don't, I'm not 100 sure you met, but I'm assuming that you met. Last one here, we'll go to the pitcher's mound. Is there a uh, comparison to the late Bob Gibson? Leon Day. Oh, Leon Day. One Leon of my favorite Day Black Diamond stories, by the way. Uh, Leon Day wasn't quite as big as Gibson, but competitive wise, and as the late Monty Irvin, Hall of Famer Monty Irvin said. If you saw Bob Gibson, you saw Leon Day. Mm. And that Gibby had nothing on Leon Day. Uh, competitive, great stuff, great athlete. Even though when you look at him at first glance, 
a guy like Leon Day and Bullet Rogan, they didn't look like great athletes, but mm -hmm. they were. Mm -hmm. You know, their their stature wasn't as, you know, I still marvel when I see Shohei Otani. That's a big young man. People don't know how big he is. He's yeah. huge. He's yeah. huge. <laughs> but and model good looks and can do it all. He's a he's a, he's an impressive human being. He's impressive, and, and so but now Leon Day had that same dogged determination and the stuff that was certainly comparable to Gibson and, and in the eyes of Monty Irvin, he thought his former teammate was even better. That's great, Mr. President. We're we're I'm, I'm in awe. I'll, quick, I'll do one rapid fire, well, two rapid fire and get you out of here. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you were commissioner of baseball, say you were the commissioner of baseball and you could change one thing about the game, what would you change? Well, they made some considerable changes. <laughs> this season? Now. We're going to find out a lot of them this season, yeah, right? We're gonna find... <laughs> yeah, they've made some considerable changes. And, and I guess I'm a bit of a traditionalist. Mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily like tinkering with the with the game. Mm -hmm. I understand why they did it. And, and I'm sure I'll be like the rest of the folks. I'll get accustomed to it. <laughs> Because you, you know, we will. We'll, we'll get used to it. We'll complain for. I don't a think while. they were shifted in the Negro leagues, though. I've never heard of the Negro league shift. Well, the right? only shift that I knew was they <laughs> said when Josh, when Josh came to the plate, you moved everybody to the outfield. Uh, yeah, the third baseman and the shortstop were down there in left field. <laughs> yeah, just like let's go out there. Right you're not gonna get. You're not yeah. gonna get a ground ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I, 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 the game as Buck O'Neill would say hadn't changed. The only thing that changed, I think, this universal DH. I, I, I've <sighs> never been a fan of the DH, yeah. but I understand why the DH is important. It has prolonged careers. I love the strategy, however, when the pitcher has to hit. Uh, you I know, do. And, I yeah, do. So if I was changing something, I'd change it back to the pitchers having to hit. Mm. Because, yeah, because I think that actually helps pitching because sometimes you forget how difficult it is to hit a baseball. <laughs> and even when you're a pitcher, and so, and it and it also helps govern the game as well. You know, when the pitcher has to get up there and standing there in the line of fire, well, you know, if he hits somebody, he stands at risk of getting hit. There back. you go. There's, there's, there's <laughs> some ju baseball justice there, yeah. Mr. President. I'm going to get you out of here on on this one. Um, you have had a lot of dinners <laughs> throughout your career. Uh, you have sat with some of the greatest baseball luminaries of all time and you are one yourself someone maybe throughout your entire life someone maybe you hadn't had the opportunity to meet if you could sit down and have dinner with any baseball player historian person uh that you've never met before mm -hmm. who would it be satchel hmm. satchel and, and i was in kansas city before satchel passes away but i'm a student at park college then now park university mm -hmm. And he used to hang out at a little gas station here in the city, 31st and Prospect, playing checkers and telling lies. Uh -huh. and, and, and I never got to meet him. Mm. He would be one that I think would just be amazing to sit down and talk to and hear the stories. I mean, I felt like I knew him because mm. Buck O'Neill made you feel like you knew him through all the stories. But to sit down with Satchel Paige, uh, over dinner would be extraordinary. 
that is amazing. And I bet you that would have been an amazing conversation. <laughs> I don't know I'm, if I would have gotten the word in, but that's okay. I, I would have sat there and gladly listened uh, because I know it would have been gold. Well, I am so honored to now be able to say that I've been able to speak to you. I've had you on the show and it is going to be one of the things that I will remember for a very long time, Mr. Kendrick. So thank you for doing, thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you for all that you do to promote black baseball. Uh, the Negro league baseball museum as always, always has something phenomenal going on. I, I'm a bit of a, Look, I'm a bit of a collector myself. I don't know if you can see it, but I've got the coins we oh, were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I've got the look. I've got the baseball cards. Um, <laughs> I've, I, I've got I've got the beer. I don't even drink beer. I got the beer cans. <laughs> um, and and I just really appreciate not just what you do at the museum in Kansas City, but Dream Series, uh, HBCU Classics. Uh, I turned on the game the other day on the MLB Network. And 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 they had the special guests doing look doing play by play commentary uh, during the game and, and it, it was you sir so it's it's a tremendous honor. Make sure everybody checks out Black Diamond season three that's coming up. MLB the show, everything that you're doing, not just I mean for the youth as well. Uh, I know Back History Month it was free. I think for Kansas City youth to to come to the museum. Well, and for any and everybody, and we we got over fourteen thousand people who took advantage of the generosity of our friends over at the Kansas City Royals who made admission free of charge for any and everyone who wanted to visit during the month of February. And I was thrilled to see so many families, in particular Chiefs, come in because, you know, we would always get our fair share of school-age group coming in mm -hmm. together. But when you come as a family structure, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the show, this passing down of history. Yeah, helping our children understand the complexities of a once segregated society and what the and, and and having them relate to the courage that these athletes demonstrated in the face of adversity and, and how they triumphed over that. That is really, really important to us here at the museum and the animated TV series, or I should say the animated video series that we did. Undeniable. Yep. Baseball, undeniable. Und Again, the effort to reach and connect with a new generation. So the animated series, MLB The Show, is part of an effort to make sure that we find ways to engage with a younger generation of people and help them identify and hopefully fall in love and become future supporters of this museum. But it's all about staying connected. Absolutely. And, and, it, and it's I will say this as we close, because the history that you're telling, it, it's beyond baseball history. It is actually the history of our country, the history of our world. And in this day and age, as you know, <laughs> where history seems to be challenged, the accurate telling of history often seems to be challenged. This is something where I think everyone can go to and learn about the amazing, amazing history firsthand and, and really, really great experiences from all the work that you're doing. So, Mr. President, we'll leave it there. It is a true honor. Uh, please, please, everybody follow and support the Negro League Baseball Museum. It is an amazing, amazing place, and it's only getting bigger now. It's only expanding with Mr. Kendrick <laughs> at the helm. So this is the Black Baseball Mixtape. Please make sure to continue to, to follow what we're doing and support. I'm, I'm so excited. Until next time, we see it. Yeah. Yo, yo, I'm trying to play living. All right. See you at the end, bro.